I have a renewed defense of the filibuster I want to offer you. I also want to show you how every slippery slope argument I've ever made is coming true. But we will start here. It's Resurrection Sunday on this week's Corey Truax Show. On the most seminal week in human history, the Holy Week, the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. The exuberance of Palm Sunday gave way to the arguments with the scribes and the Pharisees of Monday and of Tuesday, the silence of Wednesday where Jesus was giving a prophecy of the, the reality that Passover was coming and he would be crucified, to the incredible events of that Maundy Thursday where Jesus washed the feet of men who would either betray him, deny him, or ignore him in the coming hours, leading us to Good Friday where the sins of the redeemed for all time are placed on his shoulders. He is punished for them cosmically. God turns his back on him, and in the work of the cross, the veil is torn, access but access to God from man is restored, and it leads to that silent Saturday, the feelings of hopelessness because the Jesus followers had no idea what had just happened on that cross, leading to a renewed exuberance so much better than the Palm Sunday hosannas. This is a whole new thing, and we are in that week. I could not be more excited about it. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, 91.9 and 89.7, and wherever you find podcasts. I am honored that you give me a single second every week to speak into your earbuds or out of your radio speakers or however it is you listen to the Corey Truax Show. I am indeed grateful. I have a lot I want to do on the show today, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I I just feel remiss if we did not recognize that it's, it is Holy Week. And I just gave you the, the run-through there, the things that we remember. That Maundy Thursday is to remember the service of Jesus. There's a, an effective meme I see on the internet out there this time of year that says, what would you do if, it was the, if you knew it was your last day on earth? And the meme says, well, Jesus knew, and he washed feet challenging the reader of that meme, maybe let's get on to the work of serving each other and loving each other. There's a lot of different things I could highlight that on Good Friday. I could, I could do an apologetic of why we can look at the Sunday morning stories through the Gospels that recorded it, and even with the, the quote, discrepancies, end quote, of the different Gospel accounts, why even those discrepancies show this faithful testimony of a risen Jesus, a very physically dead Jesus, and a very, later on, a physically resurrected one. But I, of all the things I could highlight, for that matter, we could highlight Silent, Silent Saturday. That there is the hopelessness that sometimes even we, in, in this moment, revisit as believers wondering, is this ever going to be made right? Is this world going to be made right? Is Are the things that so challenge us, are they ever going to be made right? And the, the, the hopelessness of that Saturday that we sometimes fall into. There's lots of different things I could highlight. I chose this one, though, of the panoply of options. I thought about the core question. 
What is Easter weekend? What is Resurrection Weekend? Good Friday, Silent Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. What are we celebrating? And we say the resurrection of Jesus. Of course that's the case, but not just the resurrection, it's the death too. When when we are maybe trying to explain this to our kids or to someone who is outside of the faith and trying to get a hold of what, what are you guys doing on that Easter? What's going on there? Maybe even more specific, what is happening with Jesus on the cross? And that's where I want to focus. Believe it or not, there is some measure of controversy throughout church history about what Jesus is actually accomplishing when he is on the cross. I take the position that has this very fancy set of words, all these uh, these very highbrow theological terms. Here we go. Here's what I think Jesus was doing on the cross. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Let's break that down. What are we doing when we celebrate Jesus on the cross and then resurrected? Number one, penal. Punishment. Penalty. That there is penalty for cosmic transgression against God. That as we study the scriptures, there is a, a very real, eternal relationship between you and God. Either that relationship between you and God will be eternal, eternally loving and trusting as you trust him and respond to his love with love, or eternally, including your time here on earth and in the ever after, that relationship will be based on your suspicion of him and your rejection of him. There will be an eternal state one way or the other. And in the suspicion and rejection of the God of the Bible, there is eternal separation in a place called hell, at least in the English language called hell. It is the punishment for sin, Romans 3 saying, there is a thing you earn for sin, there's a wage for sin, and it is death. And it is an eternal one. There is a punishment for sin, because God is good and God is just, he cannot let sin go unpunished. We would not call him good. If he did, if he didn't, if he let all the things that you find and we all find terrible go unpunished, if he let child molesters and murderers, and if he let those who uh, commit genocides, the, if he let whatever race, what, uh, racism, whatever sin you think's the worst, if he let that go unpunished, he's an unjust God. So there will be punishment. And then there's penal substitutionary, substitutionary. All of us will pay for our sins. They are on us. Sin must be accounted for, every one of them. And you can either pay for it or there can be a substitute. And Jesus comes and serves as your substitute. The same way that an animal, a lamb, might have been slaughtered in the temple in the Old Testament to represent the sins of the people here is Jesus on the cross absorbing the wrath of God as a substitute for the punishment. We believe there's a punishment for sin and that when you put your faith in Christ and you follow after him, he is the substitute for your punishment. Penal, substitutionary, and then atonement. That there is a covering for sin that Jesus offers that is an eternal covering. It's a taking away. When there was the Passover meal, this is that time of year right now, the Passover meal would take care of the sins for a little while. It covers over the sins. This is the distinction when John the Baptist says of Jesus, as Jesus comes on the scene, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lambs don't take away sin, they cover over the sin. 
And John declares, no, this is a different kind of atonement. This is a different, different kind of covering up. And so you want something to celebrate this resurrection weekend? Well, here we go. How about the substitutionary atonement, the punishment substitutionary atonement of Jesus' work on the cross? You were once under the, if you are a believer, you were once under the wrath of God. It's real. It may make us uncomfortable, make you uncomfortable, that God has wrath, hot, seething anger against the sin of this world that does so much damage to us all. And he will punish it. And instead of it being on you, Jesus absorbing that for you. Glory in that, celebrate in that, and that is my Easter thought. We're taking an early break because I want to reset your minds when we come back. I want to talk to you about how every slippery slope argument I and many other conservatives have been making for years has basically been proven true. Now, I want to talk about the filibuster after that. We'll get to that and a lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey True Act Show. Every argument I've ever made that got called a slippery slope argument has been proven true. I will illustrate that in just a moment. First, welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on WHRT. His radio talk, 91.9, 89.7, and wherever you find podcasts. You can also find me, your host, Corey Truax, on every social media site. Well, actually, that's not true, because I don't snap the chat. I don't tick the talk. Uh, Neither do I do that one that started and then went away, the parlor, maybe? I just Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find me, Corey Truax, and I hope you will. You know, I love logic. I know all the logical fallacies, what it is to have a appeal to authority, the uh, straw man argument, ad hominem, circular argument, red herrings. I learned all that. I internalized all that. I can identify when someone is making or using a logical fallacy. And technically, in the handbook of logic and rhetoric, you would learn not to use slippery slope arguments. But I am finding that all the ones that conservatives used throughout the earlier part of my involvement in public life, they've all been proven true. Let me prove it. I'll go from, you know what, I'm going to do it in the reverse order. I see a story, uh, an editorial, about Oral Roberts University. Oral Roberts University is a Christian university of the charismatic type, Church of God types, charismatics, not my people, but they're I, they're part of the family. They have a basketball team that has made a impressive run in the March Madness tournament, and so they get some attention that they otherwise would not have gotten. I see that in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I now have a judge who is marrying thruples, as in issuing marriage licenses to three people that are all in the same marriage. We saw just last year and the year before in magazines like The Atlantic, someone arguing, I am a pedophile, but I don't touch kids, so you, you shouldn't demonize me. I'm a tr-. This person was saying he was attracted to children, but doesn't act on it, and therefore he, his, his sexual preference of children should just be considered one of the normal ones. Just, it's just okay. We, have, we now have real arguments happening in other states for polygamy, as was basically what happens there in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is that's just polygamy. The, the, I think it's, I actually can't remember the gender makeup of that one. But, so, so 
you have these stories. But I just remember going through the early 2000s where we say, yeah, if you do gay marriage, if that becomes a thing, why not have polygamy? What's the difference? If your only argument is love is love, and apparently marriage is only about love, it means nothing else, it's just emotional connection, then you need the government to tell you your love is worth something, which is super weird to me. So you need that, and we said, okay, so there's going to be some consequences, there's going to be polygamy. Oh, you backward, slippery, slope argument user. No, it's just love means love. It won't end up meaning polygamy happens. Well, here we are. Because of course it would. Why wouldn't it? You only have the one ethic. Basically just consent. If every adult, if adult wants to do something and everyone consents, everyone's involved. Why wouldn't you have polygamy? Of course you will. We're, that's, gonna, that's going to become quite common. That, that's, that's where we're headed. We made the argument, and it's true. We said of those debates in the 90s and 2000s that alternative sexual mores, generally being approved of, was going to lead to people starting to uh, pushing the limit even more. Some folks said there will end up being people trying to argue for polygamy being normalized. Yeah, that's happened, guys. When we decided to, to start blurring all the lines of what marriage is and what healthy relationships are, some folks said, we're going to end up with kids really confused about the difference between boys and girls and wondering if they are one or not. Well, here we are. And then a lot of us, I remember me specifically saying, and you know what happens? After you start messing with fundamental things that have been true really across cultures, even non-Christian cultures, uh, that the, the building block of a society is its families, and the building block of families are the marriages, and marriages are between a man and a woman, and then men and women create people. That's largely the case, of course, recognizing that that's not always the case with every couple, but this is rule of thumb. We make, we make policy and create cultures out of the rules, not the exceptions. And we, we said... Those of us who say that there is the one best, there's a biblical definition of marriage, that there's one thing that leads to life and thriving for humanity, and it's following the biblical way. One man, one woman, for life in marriage. Eventually, they're going to tell us, uh, and we went extreme and said, eventually you will be uh, imprisoned. Actually, I remember at the time, a very popular thing in Christianity was to say this that what will happen with Christianity is what happens with all movements that are aberrant according to the, cu- the culture. So the culture needs Christianity gone, so what happens to it? First, they'll criticize it. Then they'll marginalize it. Then they'll demonize it. And then they'll criminalize it. Criticize, marginalize, demonize, criminalize. And if so, of course, Christianity and its sexual ethics, its family ethics its family values, have been criticized. That's from a long time. And then they've been demonized. Yeah, we're thought of, like, we are thought of as the most backward people. Made, made, not just made fun of, but thought of it as the bad guys, as we are the evil ones in this culture. Because the, the number one value of this culture is be true to yourself, follow your heart. And Christianity says, uh, actually, yourself has some problems. And the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Don't follow your heart. Don't be yourself. Follow after Christ. 
And so then we get demonized, and now here we are. We are at marginalized with that Oral Roberts story. Because what I find in the person who wrote the story about Oral Roberts University says, let me find it here. All right, I'm going to actually start reading from a little bit higher up. Be- here's the, the writer is, I, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce the name. It's maybe Hamal Javari, maybe? I don't know. He or she writes, Because everyone loves an underdog, Oral Roberts has become a fan favorite. And yet, the university's deeply bigoted anti-LGBTQ plus apologies can't and shouldn't be ignored. So make sure to always read anti-LGBTQI. By the way, she forgot the I and the A, which is very offensive. The anti-LGBTQ plus policies, just read biblical. If you have a biblical policy regarding sexuality, they're going to call it anti-LGBTQ. And also, by the way, not just biblical, but... They have a policy that every institution everywhere had for 10,000 years of recorded human history. How dare they? And all they have is what we, we would have at North Greenville, that we would have a statement of conduct for students that sexuality is to be practiced in marriage between one man and one woman. Outside of that, we got some problems. That's this very normal language for every Christian university everywhere. And so she says it shouldn't be, or he, I don't know who the writer is, it needs to not be ignored. Continuing with the article, the writer says, As a private university and under the banner of fundamentalist Christian beliefs, the school is free to impose whatever standards or behavior they see fit, even if those standards are wildly out of line with modern society. Yeah, modern society. You guys are nailing it. You know who's really doing a great job with culture? Modern society. Look around. You guys have been in charge for now several generations, and all we have is emotional and familial wreckage everywhere. Yeah, I'm really going to measure success against modern society. Back to the article. Here she says, Now as Oral Roberts gains national attention, the focus shouldn't be on how good their men's basketball team is, but on the prejudiced teachings and moral regressiveness. I love this. This writer thinks that they've got the morality. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. They can declare it over the Bible, over Christianity, over a 2,000-year-old faith. This person in modern society can declare what's right and wrong. And you say, all right, fine. They're criticizing and demonizing, but that's all. She even said there, they can do, they're free to impose whatever standards they want. But do you feel the giant conjunction coming? It's not going to be and. It's not going to be so. It's not going to be however. The giant conjunction coming is... But, here's the rest of that paragraph, but the fact is, any and all anti-LGBTQ plus language in any school's policies should ban them from NCAA competition. Marginalization. You can't play with us. Oral Roberts, North Greenville University, Anderson, Charleston Southern, Liberty University, Southeastern, Boyce, California Baptist. You can't play with us. For that matter, any Catholic university that's sticking to its doctrines, like Boston College isn't, Notre Dame isn't, but there's some decently large Catholic colleges that are sticking to it. I think Pepperdine is one. I think. I could be wrong. You can't be with us. You have to have your own second society, second culture, but you can't be with the rest of us. That's marginalization. 
that is in part what was happening with what the, the bill recently passed in the House that won't get through the Senate. I can't remember what Orwellian name they put on it to make it seem like it was just balloons and lollipops and happiness and rainbows. It was just like puppies everywhere. They gave it, was it the Equality Act? They called it the Equality Act because that's what everyone does is they name their bills something to make it adorable. The Equality Act would do a lot of other stuff to Christian institutions. If you don't change your sexuality policy, your employment policy, your conduct policy, the consequences might be that the students that go to your schools can't get Pell Grants, can't get federal loans. Because it's not just criticize and demonize, yep, that's where they started, but now it's becoming to marginalize. And then you look up to Canada, you look at some other places where when you say these things in public, you go over to Europe, you say some of these Christian things in public, and they will criminalize you. And I've been saying this since 2002, 2003. Guys, 20 years ago, we were saying, if you do all these things to marriage and to sexuality, what you're going to see is a bunch of gender confusion, families falling apart further, polyamory and polygamy in marriage, people arguing for the sexuality of children, and they're eventually going to start trying to marginalize and criminalize Christianity. Yeah, we made a slippery slope argument. And you know what we were? Right. We have been proven right every step of the way. And so now I've got you fired up. And you go, yeah, Corey, good point. We nailed it. What do we do? Guys, there's really only one more thing to do. Like We're, at, we're out of options. The, the option we're down to is the option we should have started with. Share the gospel and live faithfully to biblical principle live peculiar in this world and open our mouths. May our social media feeds be a testament to the importance of the gospel. May the conversations we have about our spouses and our families be so different, be salted so differently than those around us that we are a little bit different, that when questions of life, death, and eternity ever come up, that we are ready there to sow the threads of the gospel into those conversations that God is good and just, that man is not, that Jesus is the only answer, that there is an urgency to eternity because we never know when we're going to go. And so there is a, a decision to make about Jesus and what he said, who he says he is, and what he did. That's the solution we should have started with, and that might be the one we are down to. And by the way, that might be the exact place the Lord wanted us all along. Okay, so there you go. That's, uh, I've been proven right. We've all been proven right from our slippery slip arguments, and I wanted to recognize that. Here's another argument I'm making now, that if the, uh, the outcome goes differently than I want, I believe I will be proven right. There is a renewed discussion about the filibuster. You know, on that topic, you know, Joe Manchin from West Virginia he has, he is the, Joe Manchin is one of two Democratic senators saying they don't want to do away with the filibuster. The other one is Kristen Cinema in Arizona. And they are uh, getting some pressure. They are the keys to not ending the filibuster, which, which will cause madness. If ending the filibuster will cause madness, I will predict that in a moment. 
Joe Manchin's wife just got nominated to a great position by Joe Biden. I, I wonder why. What could it be that Joe Biden wanted to nominate Joe Manchin's wife to something? Because they want Joe Manchin's vote. They're getting all kinds of pressure. You know, Kristen Cinema would not vote to end the filibuster regarding the minimum wage, and she was getting death threats from the left over it. They're getting pressure. I think, I think we're going to ma- maintain our sanity and keep it, but let me make some new arguments for it as the, uh, as the argument kicks back up, and I want to say some things I didn't say previously about it. Let me start here, though. There's certainly hypocrisy all the way around in politics, left, right, Republicans, Democrats. Lots of hypocrisy to recognize, make fun of, and criticize. All that's true. The left in particular on the filibuster is, is sickeningly hypocritical. When they do not have the Senate, they love the filibuster. They, some of them just used it. Tim Scott had a police reform bill. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina had a police reform bill four months ago. But how can we remember four months ago? How old were you four months ago? Could you possibly remember the events of four months ago where Democrats used the filibuster to stop that bill and now they're all about, yeah, the filibuster's terrible. Didn't you just use it when you were in the minority? Chuck Schumer's defended it. A lot of them have defended it when they're in the minority and then when they become the majority, they change their tune. Here is one prominent Democrat. You might remember this guy. Back in 2005, on the floor of the Senate, defending the filibuster. The American people want less partisanship in this town, but everyone in this chamber knows that if the majority chooses to end the filibuster, if they choose to change the rules and put an end to democratic debate, then the fighting and the bitterness and the gridlock will only get worse. If you can't remember that voice, that's President Barack Obama, God of the left who in 2005 was saying, we really need to make sure we don't end the filibuster. It's only going to cause more partisanship. And here I am, oddly, going to agree with Barack Obama. So here's some new arguments against it. I think his argument's a good one. It would lead to more partisanship. Here's how. If you end the filibuster and you only need 51 votes to do anything the base of each party will demand a lot more action. And it will cause incredible instability. The left says they want $15 minimum wage. They want the Equality Act. They want giant tax increases. They want whatever things they want. And then a Republic, Republicans win the House and the Senate back, which is not, un, it's not unlikely. And then... A Republican wins the presidency again, which tends to happen. We just tend to cycle back and forth between these parties. And all that stuff just gets undone. And not just gets undone. When you do that, you radicalize people like me. I I love the filibuster. I love that it requires 60% of the Senate to do anything big. Because that means if we did anything big, it had 60% support. Like we, we got some kind of consensus. We got a lot of people on board. You shouldn't be able to do country-changing, generation-affecting things with a small group. Because all that then happens is Republicans take back over. You know what we do? We repeal the Equality Act. We, we undo whatever socialized medicine you put into place. We get out of, of any of the climate programs you get in, and then we don't just undo what you did. We go even further towards our agenda. 
The example I gave on this was regarding the courts and adding judges as they were dis discussing that previously. If, if, if the left said, we're adding four judges and we're doing it by ending the filibuster, people like me, we would demand, I'm not being absurd here, Republicans, when you get back in, we're adding 100 judges. We will have a, at that time, I guess it'd be 115 person Supreme Court. And because we only need 51 votes, if we've got our 51 votes, then let's fill all 100 of them in the next 100 days. Let's go. Because if you break the system, we, you will break everyone involved in the system. We're, we're, we're playing the game that we have. We have the rule book that we have. It's the Constitution is the rule book, and then the Senate rules. If your opponent in something says, I'm not playing by the rules anymore. I'm, I'm taking this board game. I'm shoving it in the air, tossing it off the table, and now I'm playing by new rules. When you start that kind of political war, you radicalize everybody, and the sides will demand to have their agenda passed. And so that one is you have a uh, Barack Obama here saying you'll get more partisanship. You better believe you will, because we'll all demand to get everything we want every time the party that we support is has 51 votes in the Senate. The filibuster has been an incredible check on passions. People get overly passionate in the political world, and we need a system that checks those passions. Think about my lifetime. I've been alive 35 years. What are the big things that have happened in Congress? Declaring of two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, I guess those are technically called authorizations, but we did it with 60 votes each. The Affordable Care Act, pretty big deal. Uh, that might be the end of the list. And that's not a bad thing. There's been some fairly large tax policies go back and forth between the parties. But we don't, we, things like the Civil Rights Act, these big generational things, shouldn't happen constantly. That leads to an unstable radicalism. I've already talked about the radicalism because we're all, we're all going to demand to get what we want when our party's in power, but it's also unstable. There's a good check here we have on passions called the filibuster where you have to build you have to build some consensus to do anything, and that's healthy. The filibuster actually requires bipartisanship. Getting rid of it will eliminate bipartisanship, and we're just going to go to war. It is going to be absolute war. And before we go to war, can I, I just want to remind Democrats really quickly. The Senate does give a natural advantage to Republicans. Because, it's, because Montana and Wyoming, they equal four votes, so does California and New York. There is a natural advantage in the Senate for Republicans. I fully expect them to either stay 50-50 or become a 51-49 majority after the midterm election. There's a built-in advantage. And you better know that. If you want to turn the Senate into a one-vote thing, you better know. You have a natural disadvantage I've been trying to say this to people for a long time. Stop giving power to positions while the people you like have those positions. Because you know what happens? Someone you don't like gets the position. Republicans, you gave George W. Bush a ton of power in the executive branch, and then Barack Obama got a hold of it. The left, you gave a bunch of power to Barack Obama, and then you know who got a hold of it? Donald Trump. Be careful. You want to change the Senate? You want to change how it works? 
because Chuck Schumer happens to be in charge right now with a very tenuous majority and a map that's not very flattering for them in the next two cycles with Republicans controlling state legislatures and therefore the maps to, to change a lot of the, the House majority, uh, the House maps as well. Careful. As you give someone a position power when one of your people holds it, eventually someone you don't like is going to hold that power. Beware. Beware who you give power to. So that's my new uh, response to the filibuster. When we come back, I think I have a thought on two things that are happening in women's sports. Uh, one, some, something a women's soccer player said. The other was a discrepancy between the men's and women's tournaments. Uh, and then uh, I think I, I think I just have a some examples on how the the American media really is our worst institution. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on WHRT, his radio talk, and wherever you find podcasts. Welcome in for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find the podcast. Thank you for doing it. Always a thank you to those who financially support the show. Brandon recently increased his support to the show monthly. It does mean the world to me. And I mean that. That's not just me being trite. It's a big, big old deal to me, and I'm grateful. I'm going to play for you now a piece of audio from a young woman named Megan Rapinoe. She is apparently on the women's U.S. soccer team. And she spoke recently at the White House about a discrepancy in women's sports. And then I'm, I'm going to tr- probably play another piece of audio for you. And let's talk about it. I think there's some, I think there are some larger ramifications to what she's saying. Because that's what we do here. We do smarter, deeper, better talk. Not just talking about the news, but the ideas behind the news. Not just talking about Megan Rapinoe, but but talking about the ideas that make up Rep- Megan Rapinoe or Rapinoe. I'm sorry that I don't know how to say her name. That's not me being a jerk. I just don't know how to say it. So here is uh, audio from Megan Rapinoe talking about her experience in women's soccer. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community with pink hair. And where I come from, I could have only dreamed that I would be standing in the position I am today at the White House. I think it's starting strong. At least she's, I I do like the expression of gratitude. And, And also the expression of hope. Man, what a world where here I am at the White House. The President of the United States, the most powerful position in the world, is giving me a platform. What a world to be grateful for that such a thing could happen for someone. I'm also a professional athlete, and I've helped, along with all of my teammates uh, virtually here today, one teammate literally here today, uh, win four World Cup championships and four Olympic gold medals for the United States. And despite those wins, I've been devalued, I've been disrespected, and dismissed because I am a woman. On the devalued, dismissed, disrespected, I'll just believe her. I don't know what those experiences are. She doesn't get specific. I would also mention, here you again are, the the face of U.S. women's soccer, with the President of the United States standing behind you, giving you a platform. I guess you have been disrespected in some ways, You're also being given a lot of respect right now. You're in one of the most honored positions you possibly can be speaking into a microphone with the White House seal, the seal of the executive branch of the government of the United States of America. There's a little bit of respect you're getting here. I also just had a quick synapse fire in my brain. 
Because the, the stats she just gave she just gave are so dominating. Like it's obvious women's soccer in the US dominates the other programs around the world. That should tell you something. How the United States handles women's sports versus the rest of the world. You know, when you look into the Olympics, it is often the case, except for in gymnastics, it's often the American women. That, that might mean, it might mean the country's not quite as sexist as you think, especially in relation to the other parts of the world. We're probably, I'm not, we're, pro, we're not probably, we are the best place in the world to be a woman. We are the best time in history to be a woman. Now, you, you can measure the United States against perfection or against what you want and be disillusioned and angry and bitter. That's one of the options. You can also measure where the United States is on the treatment of women about where we are right now compared to the rest of the world and where women have been in the past. And we got a ways to go. But man, this is a good old place to be a woman. For example, you can get paid to play a sport that doesn't make any money and get a microphone at the White House. Doesn't seem too bad to me. And I've been told that I don't deserve any more than less because I am a woman. You see, despite all the wins, I'm still paid less than men who do the same job that I do. No, that is not true. You know who doesn't do the same job as me? Ben Shapiro. Do we both have microphones and talk into them? Yeah, but do we do the same job? No. We don't. Glenn Beck and I do the same job? No. Glenn Beck's on 500 stations nationwide. Has a multi-million dollar business. Ben Shapiro makes an insane amount of money for his employees and also for his sponsors. I have my, my little audience here. Do we both host shows? Sure. But we don't make the same revenue. We don't have the same impact. And so Megan... Rapinoe coming on here and saying, I don't make what my counterparts make, even though I do the same job. You don't do the same job. Men's sports pay for women's sports. Women's soccer, from what I understand, the U.S. team actually is profitable, like it does enough merchandising and ticket sales and all that, that it is barely profitable. It's one of the rare women's sports. You know, the WNBA runs a massive deficit. The WNBA does not make money. It only exists because the NBA exists. The NBA pays the bill for the WNBA. This brings me to another example of this. There was a couple viral TikTok videos from women's basketball players for the women's basketball tournament where their weight room was garbage. They were given a uh, facility in San Antonio where all the games are going to be played and their workout equipment was embarrassing. It was terrible. And in the videos, these women were showing it and saying, see, this, this is the discrimination against women, how unequal we are treated, and we are do, we're doing the same things the men are doing. And they were indignant and very luxury, which is never a good look for anybody. So to, that, to those ladies in women's college basketball, yeah, you should have been given way more stuff on working on the workout equipment. It was embarrassing how the NCAA handled that. But this entitled attitude that we're doing what the men are doing. No, you're not. College football and men's basketball pay for all the other sports. Every other sport loses money. 
There are some baseball programs that make some money. There is one or two women's basketball programs, I think Tennessee and University of Connecticut, that are profitable. But the guys that are playing basketball in Indianapolis in the men's tournament, ladies in San Antonio, if they weren't playing, you wouldn't be playing. Because they foot the bill. They make all the money. Women's sports, for any kind of notoriety, don't exist without men's sports. So to compare the two is logically fallacious and unbelievably self-important and entitled. No, Megan Rapinoe, you don't have the same job as the men. You don't, because you don't make any money. You don't produce anything. No, Very few people like to watch compared to what the men do. I saw some others talking about this, and one of them said something that I thought could not possibly be true, so I fact-checked it, but it happened. In 2017... The women's U.S. team, and best I can tell, the the uh, this Rapino was on the team. They played a 15 and 16 year old men's team for Texas, like the Texas All Stars for the teenagers, and they lost. The women's team lost to them, and it seems like it happened again. I think it was 2011. Like with some regularity, the women's team will compete with teenage boys and lose. This isn't, a, this isn't embarrassing. This isn't a problem. Men are bigger, faster, and stronger. They have larger hearts, longer legs, bigger muscles, larger lung capacity. All the stuff that is made of athletics, it's not a problem. No one should be embarrassed about it. It's just reality. And so there's, there's two bigger things. So what are we doing? We got Megan Rapinoe here. We have the news she's making. What, what are the things behind it? There's a few that I mentioned there. One is... Yeah, we got a long way to go, but this is the best time and the best place in the history of humanity to be a woman. That is proven in part by the fact that we even have women's sports that are so successful in comparison to the rest of the world and throughout history. This, there is a, some disrespect, I am sure, but in particular for Megan Rapinoe, she gives some kind of example of somehow at the same time having all of this grandeur, but somehow being able to feel like a victim because the culture really celebrates victimhood, There's, there are deeper meanings there than just making fun of it. But also, it, there is something to be said of gratefulness. Hey, the guys that go do their part and make all the money for college sports and for Olympic sports, like the attitude should be gratefulness. Grateful that I get to play a sport for a living. And that that which funds my sport is not me. I don't offer enough market value for this job to even exist. Other people cause this job to exist. And so I'm just going to be grateful for it. These are attitudes that the culture doesn't have. It's largely entitled. And those are the things to take away, in part, not just the fact that she said something that's not that, not that bright. All right, maybe the last thing for today, take us to the end of the show. You might remember that I was not a fan of the person who was the head of the, the previous administration. And one of the things that bothered me there was how he was getting credit for beating up on the media as a corrupt institution. Like this has been part of conservative thinking for as long as I've been involved. I mean, we're, this goes way back all the way to Reagan. Like we, we've known the media is corrupt and has an agenda. It's narrative driven. It's not news driven. We've known that for a long time and he gets credit somehow for being someone that highlighted it. But this has been a long-time thing. And I'm just going to give you two more examples to prove this case. 
The media of the United States are our most corrupt institution. We have corrupt institutions. The government is corrupt in a lot of ways. State governments, local governments, unions. Uh, I, I would call, I actually would call our insurance companies, medical insurance companies, that's a corrupt system in a lot of ways. I think there's corruption in, man, like the cable and satellite companies. There's, there's corruption in our institutions. There's some parts of the church that are corrupt. There's corruption there. The media is the most corrupt thing because these people have no, no purpose, no value in you being smarter and learning things. They got stuff they want, and for the mainstream media outlets, it is left-wing, progressive, secular values. They want that forced on everybody else, and they will pursue their agenda. For example, the New York Times recently had in their daily briefing that the United States media was way out of whack with the rest of the world's media in how they reported on COVID-19. Here is one sentence to sum it up. About 89% of COVID coverage in the national U.S. media was negative in 2020. The share was 51% in international media and 53% in local, local media in the U.S., 64% in scientific journals. So 87% of the national media, ABC, CBS, NBC, that will be also New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC. 87% of the coverage is negative, not talking about anything positive going on. The international media, 51%, about half and half. But this, this corrupt media was negative for two reasons. One, they had a political outcome. They were, looking at a, they were looking for an outcome in an election. I don't particularly care to visit with that because I had no dog in that fight. But they were trying to affect an election, but also they are left-wing secular progressives. Their values are to get more government power. They want to make states, counties, cities weaker. They want as much power in Washington, D.C. as they can, and, and they, want pa- they want government to be the center of everyone's life. The government is everything and all things to all people. And COVID was an instrument for that have more power accumulated in governments of every level. Here's another one I saw, because I read this New York Times briefing every day. They put in the headline, five facts about gun control. And I was like, oh, that's good. Let's do this. Okay, five facts about gun, maybe it was five facts about gun violence. And the first one, it went well. It was, all right, the, the the death toll approaches pancreatic cancer. They were trying to give you something to compare it to. And so they say, of gun violence, that was uh, homicides, suicides. If you add them all together, there's about 40,000 Americans killed every year by guns. That's about the same as pancreatic cancer. And then number two, again, they call this facts. Six facts about gun violence. Number two, more guns mean more deaths. And then they make the argument that the U.S. has all these guns and all these deaths as compared to Italy, France, uh, Australia was on there. They have less guns and less gun deaths. This is not a fact. The more guns mean more guns mean more gun deaths is not true. And by the way, it doesn't even they're being very they're being very sneaky. They don't have more guns equal more shootings. They have more guns equal more gun deaths. Because you take that to the United States and the places 
that are the strictest on guns are the places where there's the most shootings. Where there's more guns, like down here in the South, for that matter, I think Vermont has the highest level of most guns per household. It may not be per person, but per household. Very rural state. Doesn't have a big gun violence problem. We have a big gun violence problem in South Carolina, excuse me, in the United States, in big cities. L.A., New York, Chicago, Miami, we got a, we got a gun violence problem. There isn't a direct correlation between the presence of more guns and gun violence. An example on that too, we actually have more guns in circulation than ever. Lots of guns out there right now. And our murder rates up until recently were actually dropping precipitously and murder by gun. Murder by gun rates from the 90s up until the last couple years has been going down. There isn't a correlation. And they put it in their report as fact. More guns mean more more murders or, or more death by gun. And it's just not true. They, they were very clever in how they tried to put it together, but it's not a true thing. Uh, one other quick note on this. the uh, If you Google the words, Corey Truax gun control, Corey Truax gun control, you will find an episode I did back in 2018 called the gun control episode. And I think I went 40 minutes on nothing but gun control policy. I went back and listened to the first part of that show here recently. And I said on the show, I'm doing this episode so that we'll just always have it. We can always come back to it as a resource and revisit these things because the gun argument hasn't changed in a long time. Very little information uh, comes in to change anything. And so we, we all, we'll always have this as a resource. I highly recommend that. There's, there's some good information in that episode if you are looking for information on gun control policy as you might be trying to make a decision on where, where you stand on that too. By the way, the, the rest of the article in that New York Times thing, the five facts, the rest of it was pretty good. Uh, they even admit that mass shootings aren't the main problem. When, we, when you die by a gun in the United States, you either kill yourself or someone you know or have some kind of dealings with is the one who kills you with a gun. So at least they were honest there, and I have to uh, appreciate that. Corey Truex Show listeners, we are in Holy Week. Don't let it get by you without focusing on all of those right things. You can find uh, sermons from me over on the podcast feed and all the shows on demand. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truex Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.